This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly sermon podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's sermon. So glad you're here this morning. My name is Ron, and we're going to have a good time this morning. You've probably already had a good time. We're going to have a good time this morning because we're going to, we're going to dig into some stuff that's uh, very, very interesting uh, what's ahead and end times and all of that. But let me say a word or two to those of you who are new this morning. Um, first of all, on the inside of your program, you will find a thing called Sermon, uh, I think it says New Life Notes at the top. Should have today's date, should have some words missing. Uh, there should be blanks there, and you can take the pencil that's on your chair and fill in the blanks as we move through the morning. Uh, this is the last in a series of five sermons about destination eternity, and we're talking about, you know, sooner or later all of us are going to end up in eternity. Sooner or later everybody dies, and sooner or later everybody thinks about, at some point, okay, what's next? And this has been a whole series of sermons on, okay, what is next? And uh, actually what's next is even better than what we have here. And it's available to everyone, and, and that really is the message. You heard Bob giving you that message this morning, saying, The central message of Christianity is that God loves you, and how much does He love you? He loves you enough that He's prepared a place in eternity for you. It's going to be the exact opposite of what happened to me last night. I made reservations to go to a nice restaurant and hear live jazz. I invited my wife and a whole bunch of people to come and join us. And as it turns out, not one single person could join Monica and me. And uh, so, yeah, you can feel sorry for me all day long if you'd like. And uh, But that's not the worst part of the story. We got to the restaurant that night, and they said, we don't have any reservations for you. And I said, you have to. I called on Thursday and made them. My wife called later this afternoon, I mean earlier this afternoon, and we expanded the number of people in our reservation. And they said, but we have no table for you. I knew they had given our table away. So there you go. I had reservations and no place to go. So we went to a different restaurant and had steak, all right? Now you don't feel sorry for me, do you? Okay, all right. Yes, it was fun. Monica and I had a great time. But, you know, I got to thinking, you know, how the opposite of, of heaven that is, where it's amazing that God has reservations for people who don't show up. God has made a reservation for every single person that He's created, and it's a, the deepest desire of His heart that you would show up for the grand scene of eternity in His presence. And if you miss everything else I say this morning, I want you to get that. Boy, if there's ever a reservation you don't want to miss, it's the one God has for you. So in the context of eternity, I want to talk to you about end times and what's ahead. And I thought that I would begin by quoting a couple of famous theologians. Okay? The first would be Chicken Little. What was the message that Chicken Little gave? The sky is falling. Yeah. You want to know what's ahead? That's it. Just consult Chicken Little. You know, you know how long that message has been around? I did a little research and true, true story. Archaeologists have unearthed an Assyrian tablet that had the following message written in cuneiform. The earth, by the way, this dates to 2800 BC. The earth is degenerating today. Bribery and corruption abound. Children no longer obey their parents. 
it is evident that the end of the world is fast approaching. <laughs> and you thought disobedient children only happened in your home, right? So the second famous theologian I want to quote is Charles Schultz, the famous author of Peanuts cartoon from Santa Rosa. He said, don't worry about the world coming to an end today. It's already tomorrow in Australia. <laughs> so now, let's take a look at what Jesus had to say. He had some very interesting things to say. We're going to move really quickly through what I'm talking to you about today. I'm just going to be able to hit the high points, but hopefully it'll bring some clarity and understanding. Jesus said, speaking of the day of his return to this earth, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So, you know, here's the first thing that, that I think you should know and I should know, and that is God doesn't expect us to know everything about end times. Jesus said when he was here on this earth that there's at least one thing about end times that he didn't even know. So if, if, if what I'm saying to you today and if what I go through today you don't fully comprehend or understand, you can just relax and recognize that it's okay. That part of the mystery of, of God is the fact that if God told us everything that he knows, first of all, we wouldn't be able to comprehend it or our brain would explode one or the other. So... It's okay. You don't have to understand everything. But the second thing that Jesus said, I want to point out to you here is, He said, you know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Now, basically what Jesus is, was saying to the people, you know, you need to wise up and think a little bit here, and you need to get your eyes open, you need to get your ears open, because there's value in understanding the signs of the time that God reveals. And so there is. There's very, there's great value. And, and I know some people get all hyped up and, and they spend every day just studying end times and, and they think that somehow that when the Lord returns, if they have more things about that correctly understood and predicted, that somehow God will love them more because they somehow had the rapture and the millennium and whether it was pre or post or R or whatever else it might be, and I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, if somehow they had all the right answers to all of those things, that somehow God will be happier with them. It doesn't mean God will be happier, but I can tell you this. The, the more that you know about the coming of Jesus and the more you know about eternity, the more secure you'll be in living today. That is for sure. And it's God's desire that you would live every day in wonderful security and hope. And so we're going to take a look at that. So, but before we look at the prophecies of end times, I want to do a couple of things. I want to walk you through some principles of Bible prophecy. Because you must know these or, or you'll get all jacked out of shape when we talk about the actual prophecies of end times. The first principle I want you to understand is that the purpose of prophecy is to teach us that God's will ultimately prevails. You know, you got to understand that about life. It's not what you want to have happen in life that actually determines what happens in life. It's not what you think about eternity that decides what's going to happen to your eternity. It's what God says about your life, and it's what God says about eternity that eventually determines who you are and where you spend eternity. And you have to know that, that in the end, God's will prevails. Here, in fact, here's what the Bible says. God says, I am God, and there's no other. 
I'm God and there's no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. Would you say that's kind of like having ultimate power? Yeah? Now that's a scary thing until you realize that the only one who has ultimate power is completely good. Is that a wonderful thing? Yeah, that's, that's the awesome message of Scripture. God's not only all-powerful, He's all-good. That doesn't mean that everything He says to us is, is like uh, peaches and cream, because He still has to tell us the truth about life. And not all truth is good truth. No offense to anyone here on a diet, including me, because I am. But I have thought for a long time that one of the best ways to get people to lose weight is just simply invent a refrigerator that you have to stand on a scale to get the door open. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? And the scale would have to audibly say your weight. Wouldn't that be interesting? Dear, could you get something out of the refrigerator? I'm not touching that thing. I'm not going anywhere near it. If you want to know how much you weigh, you go stand on that scale. You see, not every piece of truth is actually fun to hear. But as long as we delude ourselves into thinking something is true that isn't true, we stand to get hurt by it. So the one who has all power is also all good, and he's good enough that he will tell us the honest truth. Now, I want to I give you three not-sos and two-sos about this. The purpose of prophecy is to teach us that God's will ultimately prevails. Here are three things that God does not give us prophecy for. Okay, The first one is this, not so we could have insider trading secrets. If there's anything that God hates and detests, it's when some Christian gets hold of a prophecy and goes out and finds somebody who's not a Christian yet and pretends that they're superior because they now have the inside track on what's coming down the pike. That's just wrong. It's not why God gives us prophecy. Here's another not so. Not so we could threaten others. That's another thing God hates. When Christians get a hold of a prophecy and then they go shake it in somebody's nose and they threaten that person because of what God has prophesied. Yes, it's important that that person might know what God has said is ultimately going to take place, but not in the context of a threat. A third not so is not so we can hedge our bets. You know what I mean? Jesus is not coming today. Pass the beer. I, that needs no explanation, right? Everybody understands what I'm talking about. Yeah. Not so we could hedge our bets. But the reason God has given us prophecy is so we would not get discouraged with all the ungodly events that take place in our world. When you open up your Bible, you read that God has written down in there that unfortunately, even though He doesn't want it to happen, and even though it's not according to His will, God tells us that there are going to be plagues and there are going to be political upheavals and there's going to be persecution of Christians and there, there's going to be disease and there's going to be sickness and there's going to be all sorts of things. And God lays it all out so that when you and I go through those things, we don't look up to the heavens and say, where is God anyway? Because God's already told us 
that that's coming. He's forewarned us. And what He's saying to us is this, that even when disease hits your home, even when sorrow hits your home, I pulled up behind a car just yesterday, and on the back window was a sticker. I don't remember the name of the person, but it had a name, and then it had a birth date, and it had a death date. And I did the math in my head, and the difference was 24 years. I prayed for the person in that car because anyone who loses anybody at 24, that's hard. But God has told us the truth about life in prophecy so that you and I will not get discouraged when we see ungodly events taking place in our world. What he's saying is don't give up because my will is ultimately going to prevail It's just not always prevailing every day, but eventually it will. The second reason that God gives us prophecy is so that you and I could deal with death in the context of hope. Virtually all of us have attended the the memorial service of someone that we know and love dearly. Many of us, several of us in this room right now, have loved ones who are lingering near, near death. And we're trying to figure out, how do I deal with that? in a context that isn't depressing. And God says, I want to tell you the truth about what's coming down the pike. I want to tell you the truth about eternity. I want to give you some prophecy so that you can live today and as you have to face death squarely in the eyes, whether it's your death or the death of a loved one, I want you to be able to face it in the sure knowledge that eternity awaits on the other side of death and it's going to be okay. And those are the two big reasons that God gives us prophecy. And so as I talk to you about the coming events around Jesus' return, I want you to receive everything that I say to you today in in the context of those two things. Because that's what's really important for you to know and for you to hear. So having said all of that, let's go to number two. The second principle of Bible prophecy is most prophecies have a progressive fulfillment. In other words, they have more than one fulfillment. I kind of look at it like, um, well, I don't know. It's like a, a funnel. You have a small fulfillment and then a bigger fulfillment and a bigger fulfillment and a bigger fulfillment. And basically, the Bible kind of divides pretty easily into four great age periods. And take a look at the chart in your notes and the chart up here, and then you'll see what I mean. I hope the one in your notes is better than the one up here, all right? Okay? Take a look at the chart in your notes. You will see that at the beginning of the chart, you have Adam, and then there's after Adam, there's Moses, and after Moses, there's Jesus, and, and then after Jesus, there's His second coming or Jesus' return. And then you will see that between Moses and Jesus, I have the word Israel written up there. Between Jesus and Jesus' return, the second coming, I have the word church up there. And after His return, I have the word eternity up there. Now, kind of here's a, a short course in how to interpret prophecy. Oftentimes, if a prophecy was given in that first time period all the way to the left, it will have one fulfillment in the age that's labeled Israel, 
It will have a bigger fulfillment in the age that's labeled church, and it will have its greatest fulfillment in the age that's labeled eternity. Okay, That's what I mean by progressive fulfillment. And God oftentimes speaks to us in prophecy uh, about all sorts of different things, and, and you think, oh yeah, that's been fulfilled, and God says, well, not quite. Yes, it has a fulfillment in this age. It will have a bigger fulfillment in the next age, and it will have its biggest fulfillment in eternity. That, by the way, will be fun because one of the things that endures through all time is the Word of God, and one of the things that's going to make heaven really interesting. Has it, have you ever heard the old statement, everybody has twenty twenty hindsight, right? You've heard that? We get to heaven and we can look backwards at all the prophecies that God made. Then all of a sudden we get to see the kind of their first fulfillment, their second fulfillment, their third fulfillment. And we begin to see, you know something? God packed into the Bible just this amazing amount of knowledge. But we just didn't have eyes or ears to be able to see it all and hear it all. We lived on this earth. So, But that's why sometimes prophecy gets a little confusing to us because it has progressive fulfillment. Let's look at a third principle. Most prophecies involve some form of symbolism. You know, unlike my father and my mother who used to say to me, here's a prophecy, son. If you don't behave, I'll take you in the bedroom and you wish you had. No symbolism involved. Okay, Everybody understood what that was all about. Okay, God very seldom lays prophecy out and just says, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. Just write it down and watch it happen. A few times He does, but most prophecies involve symbolism. I put in my margin, therefore, the interpretation of prophecy is not an exact science because it involves some form of symbolism almost always. A fourth principle is this. Most prophecies contain only a partial revelation of what will take place. God very seldom spells out all of the details. He will tell us a thing or two, just enough so that we know that He knows what's happening and His will is going to ultimately prevail, but not enough so that you and I could take pen in hand or or paintbrush in hand and paint the full picture of what it's going to look like. And then principle number five is more important than maybe the first four all put together. All Bible prophecies will come true. All of them, not just some of them, not just most of them. This is what separates God from Nostradamus and anybody else. Those guys take their best guess, and some of them that are more insightful, seem to, their, their guesses seem to be better than other people. But you know, God says, here's the one way you can tell whether any prophet speaks from me. If everything he says comes to pass, you can bet he's in touch with me. If even one of them doesn't come to pass, he didn't hear from me. He's making it up. Just that simple. Here's what God says in His Word. It is the same with my Word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to and it will prosper everywhere I send it. You see a lot of inclusive words there, right? Bunches of them because every principle of prophecy from God's Word will come true. So, let's take a look at some concepts where there's widespread agreement. Because you and I, if you've ever heard anyone speak about end times, what's the old statement about opinions? Everybody's got one. Well, boy, every pastor has his ideas about 
these events that are going to happen before the return of Christ. And rather than tell you the things that I might personally think, I'm going to give you areas where there's widespread agreement between most theologians who study these sorts of things. And uh, we reduced it down to basically three things uh, where there's widespread agreement. Here's the first one. Cataclysmic events will precede the second coming of Jesus. I left out cataclysmic so you could learn how to spell it, all right? I want to give you several words that are connected with these cataclysmic events. And if you hung around church at all, I know you've heard these words. And even if you haven't hung around church, you may have heard them over the radio or on TV. And the first, the first, uh, well, it's two words actually, is great tribulation. The great tribulation. If you've ever read or heard anyone discuss uh, any of Hal Lindsey's books or any of, of the missing series or whatever else, it's uh, the great tribulation. This is a period of worldwide unrest, upheaval, and, don't miss this, persecution of Christians. The Scripture is very clear that, that this is going to happen before Jesus comes again. Let me read to you um, just an excerpt. It's a lengthy excerpt from what Jesus said. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and there will be famines and plagues in many lands. There will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. Now what you and I don't know is how much of what he just said was symbolic and how much of it's actually just flat out that's the way it's going to be. He goes on to say there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And here on earth, nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the by the roaring seas and strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. You know what we started out singing this morning? We will not be shaken. You know why? Because even though the world will shake, God's not going to get shook up. He's telling us it's coming. goes on to say, Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand and look up for your salvation is near. In other words, this is when it gets really good. That's what he's talking about. So there's certainly this cataclysmic upheaval that's going to come around the world, and that's important for you and I to know and understand. There's another word that's used in the Bible to talk about these cataclysmic events, and it's the word antichrist. And I, you probably have heard that word. Now, what you should know is that the word antichrist is used by only one author in the Bible. He is, his name was John. He was the Apostle John, and it's only in in his epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that he uses the term Antichrist. But I wanted to read to you again an excerpt of what he says. Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. So what he's, what he's talking about is some sort of central or main or, or focal force on this earth that opposes the church because it is under the influence and direction of Satan. It's not Satan at work on the earth. It's Satan working through some earthly force or earthly power. And 
even in my short lifetime, some of you are going, that's not so short anymore, but anyway, even in my lifetime, I've heard people say that's everything from communism to Islam to so- the social security system or whatever else, okay? <laughs> it's pretty interesting what the Antichrist has been called. But it's definitely a force on this earth that sets itself against the church. There's another word that you've heard, and that is the beast and the mark of the beast. And if you read the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast, what's the number of the mark of the beast? True confession. Somebody in our audience this morning came to me and said, Pastor, I got out my check to write my tithe check. I looked at the top, and this morning it's number 666. I thought that was kind of interesting, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay. Well, here the, the beast and the mark of the beast, by the way, these are used in the book of Daniel. They're used in the book of Revelation. And, and basically, it's the same definition. It's the central earthly force that's going to oppose the church because it's under the influence and control of Satan. And so, the beast is the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is the beast, and, and, and they're under the direction of the arch enemy of God, Satan, who has set himself against God Almighty. And the mark of the beast is some identifying characteristic of people who have aligned themselves with the values and the practices of this beastly character who opposes the church. And here's another word that would be good for us to know and to understand. And that is the battle of Armageddon. I know, I know you've heard of that. It wasn't too long ago. Wasn't there a movie that came out, Armageddon? I think so. I never saw it, but, uh, I know it gets its name from scripture and I know it's apocalyptic in nature in that it deals with these cataclysmic events that happen before Jesus comes again. Um, in the Bible, the battle of Armageddon is the final battle. And you notice that in parentheses, I put the word campaign. Because the actual word that's used in the book of Revelation uh, here in, I believe it's Revelation chapter 16 that talks about the battle of Armageddon is actually a word that doesn't mean single battle. It means more like a war or a campaign of battles. But this final battle or campaign between the forces of Satan... And in the book of Revelation, that's the, the beast. Or in First, Second, and Third John, that's the Antichrist. And the forces of God, that's the church. And, and here, let me read to you the only place in the Bible where the battle of Armageddon is referred to. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast. By the way, uh, the, the dragon would be Satan himself and, and the beast would be this earthly force that's aligned with him. And out of the mouth of the false prophet. And what the false prophet would be would certainly be someone who claimed to speak for God in that they claim to be a prophet, but they're a false prophet in that instead of speaking for God, they actually speak for Satan. So you know what that means? You could expect this to be a religion that's highly respected but it's wrong. It's deceitful. That's why it's called a false prophet. 
They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. Most Bible scholars believe that that's a compound word that comes from, its prefix R is, comes from the, the word har, which means hill or mountain, and Megiddo, which comes from the name of an actual city in Israel called Megiddo. If you ever go to Israel, I'm sure you will go to Megiddo because on, on the hill of Megiddo you can see uh, the remains of, of Solomon's stables where he kept his horses and so forth. It's quite a very interesting site to visit. So, the battle of Armageddon certainly is a, is a battle or a campaign that's worldwide and it has its focus on the Middle East for sure. Then let me give you one more word that, uh, that, that is referred to and that's the word rapture. Now this one, unlike all of the other words that I just mentioned, this one, the word rapture, has no mention in Scripture. That word doesn't occur in Scripture, and so it goes into a little bit different category, but I know that all of you, or at least most of you, have heard the word or the concept of rapture, and this is how it's usually interpreted, interpreted. Without notice, the redeemed, or those who have followed Christ, will be taken from this earth to heaven while the rest of the earth will be left as it is. And I believe uh, that's the series that Hal Lindsey wrote, isn't it? No, Tim LaHaye wrote, Left Behind. Okay? Referring to that very thing. Now, here's a couple of things that I should tell you. First of all, most theologians since Jesus' days have not actually believed that there will be a rapture. You need to know that. That's a fairly late phenomenon um, uh, made popular by Hal Lindsey and people who have been students of Hal Lindsey. And so there many Christians believe in a rapture and many Christians do not believe in a rapture. But whether you believe in it or don't believe in it, those who do believe in it get it, from, get it mostly from this particular passage of Scripture. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at a handmill, one will be taken and the other will be left. Uh, so if you want to know whether I believe in that, you can come and talk to me later, all right? But I want you to at least be familiar with what that word is and what that concept is. But And all of those things would be rather cataclysmic, would they not? Sure, they will significantly change the political and spiritual landscape of the world. And God said those kinds of things are going to happen just prior to the coming of Jesus. Now, I also need to tell you that for centuries, people have been saying these have to be the last days because cataclysmic events are happening in our world. Okay? So, I'm going to give you some, some interesting insights about that. But I want to tell you that Jesus Himself said, no one knows the day nor the hour. Okay? So please don't hear me say, go out and get a credit card today because Jesus is coming tomorrow. All right? Everybody on board with that? You come back when I preach on money and you'll know that's not true. All right? So let's take a look. I want to give you some food for thought for just a minute here. And the first is, we live in a period of great international unrest and upheaval. Would you say that's true? Certainly it is. I want to tell you one of the least secure investments you can ever get today, and that's a globe. 
Because the moment you buy it, it's going to be out of date. Because some country is going to be taken over by some other country and now your globe's out of date. Yeah. Because we live in a period of great unrest and upheaval. Perhaps as much or more than any other period in the history of mankind. The second thing I want to give you is this. We live in a period of the greatest persecution of Christians. I, I, I apologize that it rarely makes our news. Okay? But I can tell you that in the last century, more Christians have been martyred than all the previous 19 centuries of Christianity put together. It's very interesting, um, and, and it's far more than coincidental that we, by a major portion of the world, are called infidels. Now, there are many other religions in the world, but none is so targeted as Christianity. I don't say that so you and I will have a martyr's complex or a persecution complex, but at some point you have to look at the evidence and you have to recognize that there is opposition to God Almighty. And it's targeted. Now I'm going to give you a piece of evidence that once in a while I haul out, and it doesn't seem very Christian, but I want you to understand it's got real purpose. The third commandment of the ten is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know how many different world religions there are? Well, there's four or five major world religions. Do you realize that to my knowledge and to anybody else that I've ever talked to, there's only one God whose name is ever used in the form of a swear word? And and, and if you'll excuse my poor language here for a minute. Have you ever heard anybody curse and swear and say, Oh, Buddha? Anybody everywhere? You've never heard that. Have you ever heard anyone swear in anybody's name except for God and Jesus? I wonder why. Because the one who motivates people to swear will not waste his time to swear in the name of somebody who's not really a God. Very interesting. More than coincidental. With great reason and purpose, Christians are targeted around the world for persecution. And though it seldom makes your news, headlines, or mine, please understand that more Christians are being killed today than ever in the history of the world. And Jesus said, in the last days, there will be great persecution of Christians. give you another food for thought. For the first time in history, the focus, the Middle East, is the focal point of the world's major events. Now there's all kinds of reasons for that. But when you talk about the battle of Armageddon and all the world being gathered together for battle in the Middle East, (laughs) throughout history, people would say, why would anybody fight over that bunch of sand? Until fossil fuels became really important. And now it's not just a bunch of sand. 
For the first time in the history of the world, the Middle East is the focus of attention. I can't tell you that Jesus is coming tomorrow. I can't tell you Jesus is coming in your lifetime. But I can tell you that there are cataclysmic events that are happening around the world. I can tell you that the persecution of Christians is greater than it's ever been. And I can tell you that for the first time in the history of the world, the focus of the world is on the Middle East. And I can tell you that those three things were definitely predicted by Jesus and in Scripture. Okay? So there's your food for thought. So that's the first thing. Now let's take a look at the second area of of general agreement, and that is Jesus will return to this earth to reign over it. That's what's going to be fun, and that's what we're all looking forward to, and that's what we anticipate and pray for and hope for. Now, there's a word that you need to understand. It's the word millennium. And uh, um, this also is very interesting because theologians have, have studied this for a long time. Now, the millennial reign of Christ is spoken of only one place in Scripture, and it's in Revelation chapter 20, but it's in there, I think, I don't know, seven, eight, or nine times in that one chapter. And it refers to a a period of a thousand years during which Christ reigns and Satan's power on earth is greatly limited. And so I'm going to give you some words uh, out of that, let me read to you uh, one passage just so you kind of get a, a grip on this out of Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand, and he seized the dragon. Now, I told you earlier that was the devil, that old serpent who was the devil, Satan, and he bound him in chains for a thousand years. And the angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked. So Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. So that's kind of the beginning of several times that Revelation chapter 20 talks about the millennium. Let me say this, that there are three different views about the millennial reign of Christ. And by the way, there's no quiz or test given next week, so you don't have to remember all this stuff. But the first is the post-millennial view. Okay? And the post-millennial view is, says basically that during an extended period prior to Jesus coming to reign on the new earth, the world will experience a time of great peace and prosperity. I'll let a little of my personal belief shine through here. I believe that of all the views that I'm going to give you, that one has the least foundation in Scripture. Okay? But that's nevertheless called post-millennialism. Okay? The second view is premillennialism. Okay? Premillennialists believe that Jesus will come and reign for a thousand years on the present earth prior to its being transformed into the new earth where all Christians believe that Jesus will reign. That's premillennialism. In other words, it means that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years before he transforms. That's why it's called premillennialism. Okay? A third view is amillennialism. And, and that is, amillennialists believe that the thousand years referred to in the book of Revelation chapter 20 is symbolic for the, for the entire age of Christianity in which the power of Satan is bound by the gospel that's preached around the world and people's lives are changed and they are delivered from the power of Satan and Satan's power is bound in their lives because of the Spirit of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know which one of those three I believe? Either number two or number three. I don't know for sure. All right? 
Because I'm really a number four guy, all right? It's a pan-millennialist. And you know what that is? I think it's all going to pan out in the end. That's what I believe, all right? Believe it or not, that's in Wikipedia. <laughs> that's really true. I, yeah, it was, it was a whole lot of fun doing the research for this. You know, some days I lean more toward the literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on this earth before He transforms it. And by the way, if that happens, are we going to be okay with that? We will be a-okay with that. And if that doesn't happen and, and He just comes and transforms the earth, will we be okay with that? Yeah, we'll be okay either way. Okay? So there you go. Those are the various views on the millennium. Uh, but one way or the other, Jesus is going to come and He's going to reign on this earth. Then the third area about which there is great agreement is this. And that is everyone will be resurrected to stand before God's judgment throne. The Bible's so clear about that. And, and, and I don't want you to take that as a threat. I'm not giving it to you as a threat. But I want you to understand the truth of this. Here's what the Bible says. And I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from His presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before God's throne. There's an obvious inference to the resurrection. And books were opened, including the book of life. I don't have time to read you the rest of that passage, but basically the rest of that passage says that there's only two possible things that are going to happen. And I want to give them to you in the food for thought. And the first food for thought thing I want to give you is this. A lot of times people, when they read that, they go, see, that's what I hate about Christianity. They talk about judgment. Ladies and gentlemen, hear me clearly. Every religion in the world talks about some form of judgment. If you're going to be a Hindu, how do they decide whether you come back as a king or a mosquito? Somebody does judgment somewhere. Karma is all about judgment. If you're going to follow Islam, you're going to stand before, they're going to teach you, you're going to stand before the throne of Allah and He's going to judge you. I don't even care if you're new age. If you're in a new age kind of thought and you think that somehow you're getting in alignment with the universe, who decides whether you're in alignment with the universe or out of alignment with the universe? And who decides when you're out of alignment with the universe what kind of negative energy you get? I don't care who you are or what you believe. Every form of religion in the world teaches some form of judgment. Now, follow me carefully. But Christianity is the only form of judgment that leaves any room for grace. It is the most gracious of all religions in the world because it does not arise from the heart of man. It comes from the heart of God. That's the first thing I want you to know. second thing I want you to know is this. Those who have, been, those who have chosen Christ as their Redeemer will receive the inheritance God has planned for them in the new earth. I wish I had time to really break that out for you this morning, but I want you to understand that you have to have a Redeemer or you don't get into heaven. And if you don't know how that works, then you just go get the CDs from the previous sermons in this series because we've broken that out very clearly. You don't get into heaven without a Redeemer. Those who have chosen Jesus as their Redeemer will receive their inheritance in the new earth. 
And the flip side of that, unfortunately, is also true. And that is those who have not chosen Jesus, those who don't have a Redeemer, will receive no inheritance. They don't have one. They'll be shut out forever from the presence of God. As we close this morning, I I want you to write these kind of two concepts under closing thoughts. I want you to write the word will slash testament. When you make a will, normally most wills will begin, I being of sound mind and all that kind of stuff, and and I declare this to be my last, what's the next thing? Will and, okay? If you have a Bible, I want you to go home, take your Bible, if you brought it this morning, and I want you to look that the Bible has two sections, and the last section of your Bible is called the new what? Testament. And the Bible makes a very big deal of this, that in order for a will or a testament to go into effect, what has to happen? The person who signs it has to die. Now earlier this morning, you and I partook of communion, and in the partaking of communion, we remembered that Jesus what? Died. And the Bible very clearly in the book of Hebrews says that because Jesus died, that His will or testament now goes into effect, and it determines what happens to the things that He owns. And the Bible's very clear that Jesus owns the new earth. And you know what He has said to you and to me? I have an inheritance for you. So that's the next word I want you to write down is the word inheritance. God has an an inheritance for you from the day you were created. Remember what I said at the beginning of this message? He has a reservation for you. He has an inheritance for you. And friends, like every other inheritance, if you do not get yourself qualified as the will asks you to be qualified, will you receive the inheritance? You can't. Is it because the person who left you that inheritance hates you? No. If they hated you, they wouldn't have left you an inheritance to begin with. The fact they left you an inheritance means that they love you. The fact that you have chosen not to be qualified to receive the inheritance probably means you don't love them. I don't know how to say it any simpler than that. The inheritance God has set aside for you is fabulous beyond anything you can imagine. And it will break His heart if you go through this life without choosing Jesus as your Redeemer so you can receive it. Would you pray with me? Father, in so many ways you've manifested your love to us. God, would you touch our hearts today? Those sitting in our audience who have never made that decision to accept Jesus and to say from this day on I choose that Jesus will be my Redeemer. I trust that He has an inheritance for me and I look forward to that and I recognize I can't earn that inheritance. I can't buy that inheritance. It's not mine by default. 
but it is mine because it's in his will if I choose him as my redeemer. So God, would you enable us to make that choice this morning? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information and past sermons, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.